0: This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way.
1: You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. Has anyone ever said that to you? And were they right? Please turn to the book of Jude. It's in the back of the book. It's right before Revelation. It's a book which warns the church against false teachers. And it instructs us to fight against them. And in order to contend with them, uh, we need to know who they are. Now, apostasy or being a false teacher typically is not listed on the resume of one that is trying to work their way into the church. So Jude helps us to identify them by their character, by their conduct, and by their doctrine. And one of the distinguishing marks of a false prophet is that of blasphemy. Please notice in the book of Jude that three times in three consecutive verses he mentions blasphemy or a form thereof. In verse 8... They blaspheme the glorious ones, referring to demons, in verse 9. Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment on Satan. And then our text today, which is verse 10, listen as I read. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now, if one follows the argument of the book of Jude, it goes something like this. Jude, who is the half-brother of Christ and who is the full brother of James, wanted to write to these people a letter about salvation. But a crisis arose, and that is that men had crept into the church unawares. And so in light of this crisis, he tells the people to contend or to earnestly fight for the faith and to war against these false teachers. Well, what do they look like? Well, he gives us several marks by which to identify them. First of all, they are people who take the grace of God and they twist it into a license for sin. Also, they are unorthodox or heretical in their Christology, that is, the doctrine of Christ. They deny his lordship. Uh, They can be compared to unbelieving Israel, the children of Israel in the wilderness, both in terms of their practice and their punishment. They can also be compared to the demons who... In their rebellion, followed Lucifer and were cast out of heaven. They can be compared to them both in their sin and in their punishment. And they can be compared to Sodom and Gomorrah in their immorality, both in terms of their practice and their punishment. Their teaching, Jude tells us, is not based upon sound scriptural interpretation. They preach their dreams. And they are people who are in rebellion. They are not in submission. They reject authority. And I said earlier, a distinguishing tattoo which identifies them is blasphemy. And Jude spells it out in terms of confidence, arrogance, and ignorance. In verse 8, they were confident, self-confident, overconfident, confident, blasphemous of the glorious ones. In other words, they will say things like, Satan, I rebuke you. Or they will make attempts to engage or go, in, go after spiritual warfare and try to fight with the forces of darkness in battle, taking it upon themselves to pronounce judgment, confidence. In verse 9, Jude demonstrates their arrogance. This through the illustration of Michael, who was contending with the devil over the buried body of Moses now, regardless of what you think concerning why the devil would want that body, Jude argues that if the highest ranking created being in the universe, the archangel Michael, turned the battle over to the Lord, how arrogant are these men to get in the ring with Satan? It is arrogance. It's like the show-off at the county fair, the sideshow where they say, hey, hey, come in, come in, and wrestle the bear. You know the guy, you've seen him, who volunteers to wrestle the bear. Not only is he stupid, but he is arrogant to get in the ring. The bear always wins. Satan always wins when we go toe-to-toe with him on our own. And then God demonstrates through the pen of Jude in verse 10, not only are they confident, not only are they arrogant, but Jude tells us, completing the trifecta, that they are ignorant. Well, today I want to speak on the doctrine of the destructive power of ignorance. It is not bliss, and what you don't know can hurt you. Father in heaven, we pause again to pray and to ask, Lord, that you would teach us deep within our hearts, Lord, how destructive it can be to be ignorant, to be uninformed, And so, Lord, I pray that not only would today's message serve to inform us concerning false teachers, that we would no longer be ignorant of them and their devices, but, Lord, I pray that today's message would spur us on in all of our lives, and especially with reference to our knowledge of you, Lord, that we would not be content to be ignorant, but, Lord, that we would learn and that we would grow. And so, Lord, make this be the beginning of that journey, For your glory and for the sake of your gospel, we pray. Amen. Well, there's a space provided in your bulletin to take notes, should you choose to do this. As we look at the verse that we're dealing with this week, it may be a little bit complicated at first reading. So what I'd like us to do is to meditate on it in the form of just going through it piece by piece and taking it apart in the form of a paraphrase. let's look at it. First word is but... Uh, but is in contrast to the humble Michael. But these people uh, who have snuck into membership and in leadership in the local church, uh, that is the people described in the first nine verses, it says that they blaspheme, uh, literally that they speak out against, that they pronounce judgment, that they boldly accuse. All that they do not understand. In other words, they speak on subjects of which they have limited knowledge. They don't know what they are talking about, but they appear as though they do, or at least they act that way. In this context, it refers to their expertise on the subject of what is going on in the unseen world of demonic activity. But their bold, inaccurate speech is not confined to that subject because Jude says that they blaspheme all, A-L-L, all that they do not understand. In other words, when you hear these people talk, seldom, if ever, will you hear them say these words. I don't know. They will never say, well, I'm not too sure. They will always act as though they have everything figured out. And if you don't believe them, well, you can just ask them. As a side note, dear church, please beware of the person who is critical of everyone else, but never critical of themselves. Please beware of Mr. Know-It-All, and his first cousin, Mr. Smarty Pants. Please beware of these people. Now, Jude is not saying that it is wrong to be discerning. He's not saying that it's wrong to be informed. He is not saying that it is wrong to point out the errors in others. What he's saying is these people do it without first having done the research. Their facts are off, and therefore their conclusions are way off. But that doesn't stop them or even slow them down from speaking out. The bottom line is they are a dangerous combination of arrogance and ignorance. They don't know what they are talking about. Let me give you an illustration. I think it's no secret to most of you who attend here on a regular basis uh, that we uh, not arrogantly but unashamedly espouse the doctrines of grace or reformed soteriology or Uh, Calvinism uh, in the form of T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Now, should you choose to call it something else, that is irrelevant, but at the end of the day, we believe that salvation is of the Lord and that from beginning to end, God saves sinners. And I remember the first time that I was ever exposed to this doctrine or to these doctrines, I was a junior. I don't know if you could call me a junior. I was on the five-year plan. I was in the middle year of college, and I was sitting in an American literature class being taught by a pagan at the University of Georgia, and as he began the semester, he told us, you cannot understand early America without understanding the Puritans, and you can't understand the Puritans without knowing jonathan edwards and you can't know really what america was like in those days without understanding the first great awakening and the sermon sinners in the hands of an angry god and really none of that is going to make any sense to you until you understand what calvinism is and he wrote on the board t-u-l-i-p said we're going to have a quiz tomorrow these are what these letters stand for I came in the next day. I'd never seen it before. I came in the next day as an ambassador on a mission, and I raised my hand before the quiz, and I said, listen, I'm going to do my best to get these right on the quiz, but I just want to say on behalf of all good Christians everywhere that this is not what the Bible teaches, and that Edwards fella, whoever he may be, was a moron. He was an idiot. He didn't know what he was talking about at all. Well... Well, truth be known, Jonathan Edwards is arguably the most brilliant man that ever walked on American soil. He is the most brilliant theologian and probably the most brilliant philosopher that has ever been on our continent. But no, not Mr. Know-it-all. Ed Moore was going to set Jonathan Edwards straight. Long story short, I came to repent in sackcloth and ashes in a few years and to espouse everything that edwards believes about this But I just say that to say this since that time And that was 30 years ago this month Since that time just about every person who has engaged me since I have become a calvinist Just about every person who has engaged me in a debate about the sovereignty of god and salvation Has spoken to me from a position of ignorance such that they were not arguing against what i believed at all but rather what they thought i believed several years ago we had a debate here at north shore baptist church where we had a calvinist debating a non-calvinist on the subject of predestination and the gentleman that was representing the calvinist position had written books on the subject and on the subject and he mailed those books to his opponent ahead of time and Said, here, if you want to know how to defeat me, this is it. This is what I believe. So the non Calvinist got up in this pulpit at that debate and basically condemned the doctrines of grace, but it wasn't what we believe about the doctrines of grace. It was a caricature of it. And then the reformed apologist got up and said, why is it that everything that you say we believe, we do not believe? Did you get the books that I mailed you? The man said, Yes, I got them. He said, Did you get a chance to look at them? He said, Yes, I looked at them, but I didn't read them. I just looked at them, and he laughed. You see, in life, this is just a lesson to learn, you actually cannot disagree with someone until you can state their position to them in terms which are acceptable to them. Otherwise, you are not actually disagreeing with them, but you are disagreeing with what you think they are saying. So you can say, for example, I disagree with the doctrines of grace. That's okay, because many good Christians do. But, first of all, tell me what the doctrines of grace are that you are disagreeing with. And I will bet you a shiny nickel nine times out of ten that they cannot do this. They disagree with it, but they do not know what it is. In the same way, Jude says, these men, these false teachers, speak confidently about what they do not know. They ramble on, but they do not have the facts right. In other words, Jude is saying of them, you don't know what you're talking about. Look at the second half of verse 10. And are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. The wording there is a little bit awkward, but here's what Jude is saying. There are some things that they do understand. Understand. Now, the way that they understand them, Jude said, is not through truth. It is not through the Word of God. It is not through logic or reason. Uh, it is not spiritually or through the Holy Spirit. But the way that they understand these things is the same way that an animal would understand things. They, like brute, unreasoning animals, understand how to operate in the realm of instinct. They learn what they think to be the truth from their base impulses like animals. Uh, In other words, doing what comes naturally. Several years ago, I had a friend who uh, had a home out on Long Island, a summer home, and he allowed the ministers of the church to use that home for a planning retreat. And he said, listen, as you're going out there, I just want you to do something for me. It's not going to take long. He said, could you just take a saw and some hedge trimmers, and would you go to the trees in the back that are kind of hanging low? He said, because there are deer that come into the the yard. And he he said, well, let me tell you, they just don't respect the property at all. And then he stopped and he said, well, they are wild animals. I guess you can't expect them to respect the property. And he's right. Now, Jude is not making a case for evolution. No, man is a separate, unique creature made in God's image, distinct from the animal kingdom. What Jude is saying is that they have not... He's not saying that they have lost the image of God. But what Jude is saying about these teachers is that sin has infected them to the degree that they reason like animals. And that the governing principle which rules their lives is the flesh. They gather resources for decision-making from within. And because their hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and because their (coughs) thoughts and imaginations are always evil continually, Jude says that they are like animals. He does not say that they are animals. He says that they are like animals in that they are ruled by their senses and their instincts, And sadly, Jude says, this is something that they know how to do very well. And they know how to do it so well, Jude says, that they pursue it so skillfully that it will eventually serve to destroy them. It's sort of like this. The fish that is swimming toward the worm that has a hook underneath it is just doing what comes instinctively. And the beast who walks through the woods and smells the bait and walks into a steel trap will be defeated by their natural instinct. And Jude tells the church, these false prophets are self-destructive and instinct will lead them to ruin. Therefore, it does not avail when speaking with these people to reason with them or to show them the scripture or to rebuke them. Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the natural, and these people are natural, unsaved person, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, they do not have the capacity. Now you can treat them like an animal, spiritually speaking, and say to them, we need you to modify your behavior and offer them a treat, and say, jump, sit, speak, roll over, and there will be a temporary, relative, momentary movement in the direction of good. But like Rover, they can't repent, or they can't believe, or they can't be humble for any sustained period of time, and they certainly can't grow in grace. I mean, do you think that the lions back in the first century in the Colosseum Who ripped the Christians to shreds? Do you think that they walked back into their cages with blood all over their jaws? That they felt remorse? Of course not. And neither do these animals, and I use that word metaphorically, neither do these animals who come into congregations and destroy Christians and rip apart their faith and rip apart their lives, neither do they feel any remorse. Paul says in Acts twenty twenty-nine, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. You say, why are we so slow to plant our next church? I mean, don't we have the people? Yes, we have the people. Our church is too big right now. We need to go plant another church. But my goodness, we need to be very careful who these people are entrusted to, people that will care for the sheep. Now, please understand the key here when I'm talking about ignorance. When Jude says that they are ignorant, this does not necessarily mean that they are uneducated. Here's where you have to be very careful. They might be unschooled and they might be very dull and they might not be able to put a sentence together using proper grammar. But they could just as easily be ignorant and have a Ph.D. in theology and be very articulate. Ignorant does not mean that they have not been to seminary. Ignorant means that they do not know nor have they applied the gospel. And so I say to you, do you know the gospel? This doesn't mean that you aren't well versed in the scriptures. Maybe you are. Uh, these people might be very good preachers who will treat the text accurately. And maybe they know Greek and they know Hebrew and they know sound hermeneutics. But the gospel is not something that is learned primarily. The gospel is something that is revealed by the Holy Spirit. And just because a person has a lot of letters after their name or They have a multitude of diplomas hanging on the wall, or they are very articulate, or they can quote a lot of sound theologians, or they run around with a lot of sound theologians, or for that matter, they can quote a lot of Bible verses. That does not mean that they aren't ignorant concerning the gospel. And so I ask, what about you? Maybe you know a lot about religion, but do you know the gospel? And by that, I mean, do you know the facts of the gospel? that God is holy and that He demands perfection and that you are a sinner and that you are not perfect, but you are separated from God because of your sin and that God loves sinners and that He loves sinners so much that He sent His Son Jesus Christ to come from heaven to earth to live that life which we could not live in our place and then to go to that cross and die that death which we could not die in our place and there upon that cross taking our sin and the punishment which we deserve from God the Father. Do you know the facts of the gospel? Do you know the application of the gospel? The application of the gospel is that you would not only see intellectually that you are that sinner, but that you would feel deep within your heart a sense of conviction that you are unworthy and that you would cry out, even as Isaiah did, Woe is me, for I am undone. That you would say, even as Peter said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Or you would say, even as the tax collector prayed in the temple, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. Have you seen the application of the gospel in that you have been convicted? And have you seen the application of the gospel in that you have seen Christ as beautiful and seen Christ as sufficient and you've understood that what He did on the cross was enough? And have you had the application of the gospel in that you've been given faith to say, I'm placing all of my hope in Him and I'm turning from my sin? So you must apply this gospel. That's what it means to know the gospel. But it's more than that. Have you seen the power of the gospel? We're told that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So do you know that power? You see, it is very possible for a person to know the facts of the gospel and to even experience some emotion surrounding the gospel but still not know the gospel because that power hasn't been revealed in their life. And so I ask you, is the power of the gospel at work in you, or are you still ignorant? You say, well, how do I know if the power of of the gospel is at work in me? Well, it is at work in you if you repent and you continue to repent. And if you have in your heart the peace of God that passes all understanding, and if you have the fruit of the Spirit which is ever-increasing in your heart, and you have an affection and a love for Jesus Christ, and you have love for other people, and if you are convicted of your sins and if you are humble and increasingly becoming more humble. That's how you know the gospel. And the point is that well-educated, articulate Bible scholars can find residence in Jude 10... And really be unsaved. Romans 1.22 says. Claiming to be wise. They became fools. In other words. It is possible. Simultaneously to be well read. And a scriptural moron. So. They don't know what they're talking about. And they talk nonetheless. And what they do know well. Well. This is what leads them to destruction. And that's is an animalistic instinct driven heart. So that's what the text says and I believe that's what the text means. We're nowhere close to being finished but I do want to start to apply the text right now. Now before I apply the text, let me take a commercial break and give credit where credit is due. I try every week when I'm preparing the text to read several commentaries. Some of them are good, some of them not so good. But I tried to take the best of the best and to give you what I'm able to glean from that. And I keep coming back to this one commentary because it is head and shoulders far superior to the rest. And it is by a gentleman by the name of William Jenkin, J-E-N-K-Y-N, who lived from 1612 to 1684. He was from England. He was a Puritan. And he has written a big book, 360 pages, Now, when you consider that Jude is only 25 verses long, and this man has written 360 pages on Jude with really big pages and really small print, and this man lived 400 years ago, it is a very rich resource. And you might be wondering, why are we going so slowly through the book of Jude? I mean, at this point... I've slowed this thing down to a crawl where, you know, at first we hit four verses and then since then we've been hitting one verse a week and I can already see next week that perhaps the next verse is going to take as much as three weeks. Why are we going so small with such a small portion of scripture taken in each week? Well, you can blame this Jenkin fella. Because I'm treating it as thoroughly as I can. And I just want you to know that this is not an arrogant statement. I honestly believe with all of my heart that the applications that I am about to give you right now are extremely helpful. But I also need to be honest and tell you that many of them are not my ideas. But these are the ideas of this Puritan who lived 400 years ago. So credit where credit is due. Also to say, if you don't like my applications, please look Mr. Jenkin up when you get to heaven and let him know. I have three applications this morning and here they are. First one is this. Ah, Ignorant people are usually very quick to speak. Ignorant people are usually very quick to speak. And those who who know the least sometimes say the most. And they shouldn't. Ecclesiastes 10.14 says that a fool multiplies words. James, who is also the half-brother of Jesus and the full brother of Jude, says in chapter 1.19, Let every man be slow to speak. Proverbs 18.15 says, If one gives an answer before he hears it is his folly and shame. And back to the book of James, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And that's why Paul, in 1 Timothy 3 6, speaking of elders, says that a qualification or a distinguishing mark of an elder is that he must not be a recent convert. Now, I know that for some of you, this drives you crazy. And the reason I know that it drives you crazy is because you have told me that you do not like this about my preaching. But from time to time, when I come to a portion of Scripture that I am unsure of, what I will do is something like this. I will, say, I will read the text and I will say, hmm, many good men have argued on what this means and here are the options concerning what they have said. I think the best option is option two or option three or whatever. But maybe I'm wrong. People will stop me and say, Pastor, I just can't deal with this whole thing of the pastor standing in the pulpit saying maybe I'm wrong. But if I'm not sure, I don't want to speak as though I am sure because I'm going to be judged on what I say up here. Now, I am not Postmodern. I'm not an existentialist I'm not one who says, well, the text, the text can just mean whatever it means to you and whatever it means to me, it means. No, there is one meaning and all other meanings are wrong. They may be sincere, but they are wrong. And so when I say, thus saith the Lord, I am not graded on my sincerity, but I am called to be accurate and so are you. And so before we speak, we should study. And this doesn't just apply to theology, but in life. Learn to learn and then to speak, and in that order. Here's application point number two. Since Jesus is the truth, ignorance which is unbridled is an enemy of Christ. I mean, do you see the conflict here? Jesus said, I am the truth. So that which would be ignorant would be an enemy of Christ. We know this concerning the crucifixion. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.8 concerning those who put the Lord to death that none of the rulers of this age understood this for if they had and they didn't, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, if they had known that Jesus was who he really is, they wouldn't have killed him. Peter says the same thing in Acts 3.17 when he is preaching on Solomon's porch. And he says, I know, speaking of those who crucified Christ, I know that you acted in ignorance. Jesus himself acknowledges this upon the cross. With his arms outstretched as the nails were being pounded into his hands, he said, Father, forgive them. And what was his reasoning or his rationale? Father, forgive them. Why? Why? For they know not what they do. By the way, you should always quote that in King James. Matthew 22:19. when they come to Jesus with this riddle about marriage and who will be married to whom in heaven, Jesus says to the Sadducees who don't even believe in heaven or a resurrection, he says, you are wrong. Why are you wrong? Because you neither know the scripture nor the power of God. In other words, you are ignorant. Jesus sitting at the woman with the woman at the well in Samaria uh, tells her that her problem is ignorance in John 4:10. He says, "Woman, if you knew the gift of God and you don't, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink and you don't, you would have asked." Implied you are ignorant. But I think the classic verse in all of this in all of the Bible is Hosea chapter 4 verse 6, which says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We know that phrase, but do you know what comes next? Hosea writes, Because you have rejected knowledge, stop, think, meditate. Because you have rejected knowledge. In other words, this is not just an ignorance, but this is a willful ignorance. You know what willful ignorance is? It's when you don't want to know. When I have been to a wedding and I come back to the house, I don't want to get on the scale. I don't want to know what it says. There is a willful ignorance. When in the mail I get a letter and up in the upper left-hand corner it says, Internal Revenue Service, I don't want to open it. When I have preached a poor sermon and I go home, I do not say to the family, So, tell me how I did. I know how I did. I don't want to hear it again. And basically, the truth of Scripture is that men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. People are not seeking the truth. It is a willful ignorance. And the light of the truth of the gospel hurts their eyes. It is just too bright. And when one lives in sin, not only are they ignorant of the truth, but they are gladly ignorant of the truth. They suppress it in unrighteousness. They are willfully ignorant. And so Hosea says, you have rejected truth. Listen to the text. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you, God says, from being priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Now, this is not a lesson on parenting. There are many, many contributors to losing your children to the world, the flesh, and the devil. An absence of the knowledge of God's Word is one huge factor. Now, a knowledge of the Word of God is no guarantee of salvation that is in the hands of God. But an absence of a knowledge of the Word of God is a sure way to lose them. God here is not talking, parents, about us teaching our children Bible trivia. He is talking about them knowing the Word of God, the Scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. He's talking about the knowing, the believing, and the doing of the Word. And dads, you are responsible. How well do your children know the Word? I mean, would you be content if at age 14 your child couldn't read, or they couldn't write, or they couldn't walk, or they couldn't talk, Or they couldn't use the bathroom. Excuse me, I've got to go. Where are you going to go? I've got to take my son to the toilet. Well, how old is he? Well, he's 17. Now, I realize that there are children that have difficulties that do require that kind of help. But under normal circumstances, all things being equal, by the time your child is 14 or 15 or 16, they should know how to use the bathroom. And you would be very discontent if they did not. Why then is it acceptable for them to know so little about God's Word? Ignorance is an enemy of Christ. And that's why Paul says, h- How does Christian growth come about? That's why Paul says, Be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. What we need as Christians is grace and truth. Listen to the words of 2 Peter 1 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. And in Colossians 3 10, Paul writes, Put on the new self. Well, Paul, how in the world am I supposed to do that? Put on the new self, Paul says, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So, since knowledge of the Word is your friend and ignorance is your enemy and the enemy of Christ, avail yourself to every opportunity to intake the Word. My friends, not because of statistical reasons but because the word of god is proclaimed do not skip church no not on your life not on your life unless providentially hindered study your bible at home daily make sure your family is in the word D-group members, diligently do your reading and your writing in the book of Luke. Turn the television off and do whatever it takes to be knowledgeable in the Word. Christians who are ignorant in the Word do not represent Christ well, and Christians who are ignorant in the Word willfully will suffer the chastening of the Lord. Know your Bibles. Here's the third and final application. As knowledgeable Christians, we must speak out against what we know to be wrong. You say, well, where do you get that from the text? The text says that they talk about things that they don't understand. Well, here's the argument. Arguing from the lesser, that's those who don't know the word, to the greater, that's those of us who do know the word, if an unsaved, uninformed, apostate, ignorant, false teacher is not bashful about speaking against what they don't understand, how much more should a saved, spirit-empowered, knowledgeable Christian speak concerning what he or she does know? In other words, we've got to say something. If the unsaved are bold enough to confidently say untruths, should we who have the truth not be bold enough all the more to speak up? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11 paul says knowing the terror of the lord now stop right there we who are saved know the character of god and we do know the terror of the lord knowing the terror of the lord paul says and he's not speculating he's not relying on dreams we persuade men knowing the terror of the lord we speak up jesus said to nicodemus in john 3:11 we speak what we do know, and we bear witness to what we have seen. And in Psalm 107, verse 2, you know it very well. It says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble. In other words, say something. Speak the truth in love, but speak the truth. Matthew 10, 20, and 33 says this, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, Jesus says to his disciples, I also will acknowledge him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And Ecclesiastes 3.7 says that there is a time to keep silent and there is a time to speak. From this text today, we know that when one is ignorant, they should keep silent. They don't know what they are talking about That is the time to shut up. But when you have the truth, when you have the truth, and when you know the truth, Jesus said, I am the truth, that is the time to speak. Now, specifically, I can think of two arenas where Christians are strangely and inexplicably and inexcusably silent. And here's the two categories. Number one, evangelism. Uh, How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Uh, Earlier, I spoke of the doctrines of grace, the tulip, Calvinism, reformed soteriology. My goodness, if you're soteriology, nobody believes in the sovereignty of God and salvation more than I do. But if you're soteriology has driven you to become complacent, saying within your heart or practicing in your life, if God wants to save the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. You don't understand the doctrines of grace. You don't even understand the Bible. How shall they hear without a preacher? The implied answer is that they won't. And to say nothing is to say something, and it is to say, I don't care. Now, Concerning eschatology, here's one of these times I'm going to stand behind this desk and say, I don't know, okay? I don't know. I'm unskilled enough in eschatology that I'm not going to paint a picture or draw a chart. I don't know what judgment day is going to look like. So just forget that whole idea as I make this point. I'm just going to simplify it, and that is this. I do not want my friends or my neighbors or my family members to go to hell, period. But I really don't want them to go to hell and be there throughout eternity thinking of me and saying to themselves, he knew, he knew, and he never said a word. He never said a word. He never opened his mouth. How does it grieve you just in the temporal to be blindsided when you could have been protected if a friend would have said, hey, watch out for. It's really good to get a heads up you know what a heads up is, right? You're at a little league practice and you have your back to the field and all of a sudden the ball is hit straight up in the air and it's coming in your direction and the players will all look over and they will go, hey, heads up. In which case, you know, to either cover your head or to look up or to move out of the way. That is a good thing. A heads up is something that a friend does for a friend. Well, aren't you glad, those of you that are saved, although you may have initially resisted it, that some evangelist gave you the heads up? Now, maybe you hated them initially, but soon you came to love them. And you who have the truth... You are in a very small minority. This is not a rhetorical question. I want you to answer it. Why are you keeping it to yourself? There are answers, but there are no good answers. Hide it under a bushel? No. Christ died for the ungodly, and whoever believes in Him will not perish. I'm going to let it shine. Here's the second arena. We must, who have the truth, speak out concerning abortion now, if you have had one, and the the reason I bring it up is is threefold uh, number one because I, I I believe it does fit into the text. We must speak out uh, i I also bring it out because January marks the anniversary of Roe v Wade from nineteen seventy three And I also bring it out because tonight we have an opportunity to give to the Borough Pregnancy Counseling Center. So that's my my reasoning here. But I want to say if you have had an abortion or you have been a party to an abortion, that is you have urged your girlfriend or your wife to get one or you have paid for one or you are in the medical profession and you have participated in one, you need to know two things. You need to know, first of all, that it is murder that it is the taking of a human innocent life. Science, logic, scripture, it all screams, that is a human being. And with a beating heart, it rests in the mother's womb. And when one intentionally stops that beating heart, they have killed a human being an image bearer of God, a person with a soul. The question concerning the choice of the woman is absolutely irrelevant. I do not have the choice to murder you, neither does a woman have the choice to murder her unborn baby. And we as a nation have legally, and I stress that word legally, we have legally allowed over 50 million people to be mercilessly slaughtered in the wombs of their mothers since 1973. That's the first thing you need to know. Plain and simple, it is a human being. It is murder. The second thing you need to know is that Jesus is willing to forgive repentant murderers like you. He did so for David. He did so for Paul. He did so for the thief that was hanging beside him on the cross. So go to him and seek him and seek that forgiveness. Now, concerning this text, we who know the truth must say something against this crime every chance we get. We must say something in our private conversations. We must say something in the public forum. My my son Parker was telling me of his class on Friday in his religion class. They were talking about Adolf Hitler why was Hitler able, in good conscience, to kill six million Jews? The answer is plain and simple. It's because of his belief in evolution, and it was the dehumanization of those people. I mean, after all, in his mind, they really weren't human. So it was okay to kill them. And so Parker raises his hand and says, I think the same thing is going on with abortion. The way that women and doctors are able to kill babies is because they really don't view them as human. And the professor said, let's not get into that. We don't want to be political right now. And an unsaved kid in the class who is a proponent for abortion said, no, this isn't political at all. This is a matter of philosophy of life. And so the conversation continued. And the fellow said, I believe that a woman has a right to do this and actually it can be a very merciful thing if we know that the child is going to be born into a home where they're going to be poor or the child is going to be born with some sort of a birth defect. Therefore, it is a good thing to do. And Parker said, all right, let's do this. Why don't we go out this afternoon and round up all of the Down syndrome children in Clark County and let's just line them up and shoot them. I mean, after all, they couldn't be enjoying life, could they? Better yet, how about let's go out and let's round up all the children who don't have nice shoes. Obviously, they're living in poor families. Let's just kill them all. The guy said, that's ridiculous. That's wrong. That's immoral. Parker said, exactly. And so is it immoral and so is it wrong to kill a baby in the womb. The only difference is size and location and method of murder. So he said, you're not saying that abortion is the same as what Hitler did. Actually, it's not the same as what Hitler did because he only took out six million. We as a nation legally have taken out 50 million. And just as there was a voice in the rebellion of John Brown or a war from 1861 to 1865 that brought slavery to an end. And today we think that slavery is unthinkable. Well, what needs to happen in order to turn America around from abortion? You see, the truth is, and by the way, if you have not yet watched this, I challenge you to watch this. Go home, type in your computer on Google, 180, and watch the 180 video. In it you will see both an evangelistic presentation and an argument against abortion, and the people that are interviewed on the street will all come basically to this conclusion. They will say, you know, I never really thought about it. And that's the truth. They haven't really thought about it. So we need to say something. We have to bring up abortion in our private conversations and say something. And if you don't speak the truth, who will? Also, we need to say something in the voting booth. As a Christian, the number one issue which must drive our vote is life. The economy and foreign policy and health care and national defense, they are very important. But for the Christian, the biblical Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, the issue of babies being murdered outweighs them all. And so the question needs to be asked, are there true Christians who knowingly vote for politicians who outspokenly state that they support a woman's right to murder an unborn baby? I will let God be the judge of that. But not that I am being your judge, but if you would ever vote for someone who would advocate the murder of an unborn child, I would like to know, and this is not something that I'm just saying out there, really, if you are one who would vote for someone who is in favor of abortion, I would like to know, what is your rationale? How can you do that with a clear conscience? I urge you, on behalf of the unborn, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the glory of God, never, under any circumstances, ever, should you who call yourself a follower of Christ vote for a pro-choice candidate, ever, ever, And use your voice, not only in the voting booth, but use your voice in prayer to pray every day with all of your heart for our current president. That God would have mercy upon him. And rather than being critical of him, to pray for him. You are called in scripture to pray for him. Pray that he would be redeemed and that God would change his heart and use his influence to save human life rather than to continue to promote the slaughter of innocent children. Pray, Christians, pray. I know I've exceeded my time. I know that it's warm in here, but friends, please listen to me. It is so easy to be political and to be critical. But God has taken some of the most wicked kings in all of Israel and he has saved them and redeemed them and turned a nation around. Do you spend more of your energy praying for our president or criticizing him? Finally, I would say you need to say something with your wallet. This church, North Shore Baptist Church, enthusiastically promotes and supports the ministry of the Borough Pregnancy Counseling Center. It is the only evangelical pro-life voice in Queens, and Brooklyn, and the Bronx, and probably some other areas as well. And they, they alone are the answer to the opponents of the life movement who say, you know what? You, you pro-lifers, you, you care about babies. From conception to birth, but after that, you forget about them. First of all, that is a lie. The compassion does not end at birth. And the Borough Pregnancy Counseling Center offers practical care to mothers and dads and babies and families. And they don't say, be warmed, be filled. But they act, and they give, and they love. And they are a voice of the gospel, and they are a voice of kindness And they would like to do more, but that which holds them back is money. And so members of North Shore Baptist Church, because you are a member and you've committed yourself to the assembly of the saints, be here tonight, but don't just come. Come prioritizing tonight, M night, as a night when you will be prepared to say something with your wallet. Say something for the glory of God. Say something for the unborn. James 4, 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him it is sin the ignorant should be silent we who know the truth must study it and learn it and we who know the truth must speak it may God grant this to be so father in heaven thank you that you have in your mercy called us to yourself Lord through the truth of the gospel Lord, may we more and more know the gospel. And Lord, may we unashamedly speak the gospel. This we pray in Jesus' name. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.